The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, my name is John Santopietro. I'm a psychiatrist and I am the physician-in-chief at the Behavioral Health Network of Hartford HealthCare, headquartered in Hartford, Connecticut. During the pandemic, I have been part of a team providing support to healthcare workers on the front lines, and I have a particular interest in making sure that their stories get told. The Quell Foundation has put together this podcast in order to lift up the voices of those on the front lines as a way of reaching those who are still out there in the hope that they will be inspired to reach out for the help and support that is there for them. While there's been a lot of reporting about the pandemic in the news and even about the front lines of healthcare, what's unique about this podcast is that you get to hear the stories from the people that lived it and actually are still living it. I would also encourage other leaders to listen into this podcast because there are many lessons and clues about what makes good leadership in a pandemic and a crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in the Silent Pandemic. So welcome, everybody. I'm really excited to be here with Miriam, talking with her today and her experience as a nurse on the front lines during the pandemic. And thanks for being with us, uh, Miriam. I wonder if we might just start, as we sometimes do, with where were you when the pandemic hit and where did you find yourself in terms of uh, work? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. It really is an honor to share these stories because they're really important. And I hope that it can kind of reach people that might be looking for some sort of like peace or a way to relate to others that have gone through it. But At the time of the pandemic, when it began, I was in New York City and um, I was working at a hospital up around like upper Manhattan. And it was the point where um, we're hearing this low rumble of this virus that's, you know, Mm. about to hit the States severely for the first time. And so I found myself in a position where I had to make a choice in terms of what I was going to do as a nurse. I am a travel nurse. I've been travel nursing for three, four years. But at that very moment, I had been in New York for about a year traveling and I almost was about to leave. So in that moment, they asked me, you know, because now they're preparing for, you know, a mass influx of patients and a huge like drop in resources and staff. So I was asked to stay. And at that point, you know, I made my decision to stay in the city. So you decided to stay in what was really at that point, the big hotspot. You know, it's interesting just how everything lined up for me in terms of a traveler, because I could have left at that very moment. There was so much fear and anxiety and 
and also money being thrown around for these travel nurses. I mean, it was all over the news about people coming from all over the country to help out for these like, you know, massive amounts of pay. And I even got a little bit pressured by my company to leave and take one of these big Mm -hmm. juicy contracts. But I had such a strong connection with Mm -hmm. my peers and my colleagues at that time at that very facility. And in that moment, you kind of get into this mode where you're like, you feel like you're about to enter a war zone or something very severe. And so I look to the left and to the right of me. And I think if I'm going to go through a really difficult time, I want to be with these people. These people mean a lot to me. And to me, human connection gets me through the worst of things. And so that was the most important thing. And so I kind of doubled down on that and it really ended up saving me in the end, I think. Wow. Uh, that's amazing, you know, Miriam. I, I've heard certainly from people after the pandemic had been around for a while say what you just said, but I don't know that I've heard anybody from the beginning that said, you know, it's the connections that you rely on to survive a crisis. So you saw that really early. And, you know, we had a chance to talk a little bit before the show, and I remember you saying something about this phrase, we needed to link up arms. Was that something about the leaders that were there or what was that? You know, it becomes really evident that when shit's going to hit the fan. And so to me, like here I am by myself in the city. I don't have like family nearby. And these people around me became my family. They became the people that, you know, we decompressed with, we bounced our feelings like off one another. Um, And not only that, but we're going through the same thing together. And I think that's really important because family that aren't in healthcare can only understand to such a degree. But when you're standing side by side with people that you're feeling these things and witnessing this together, that sense of community is really important. During a crisis, in terms of leadership, your leaders become extremely important because whatever headspace they're in, whatever they're communicating trickles down. It affects everybody. And so from where I was sitting in terms of me kind of being a contract person, but still part of the family in my own kind of unique way, I felt that the management, at least on our floor, did a really good job of preparing us and listening to us, despite how crazy everything was. Mm -hmm. I know there was a lot of frustration as many hospitals had in the beginning to where so much is changing minute by minute. And so you get directives that are changing just as quickly. So Mm -hmm. when the pandemic first hit and we first started getting our patients, the first mandate came out, which sounds really silly now, but the first mandate came out. Mm -hmm. No mask wearing Mm -hmm. because it's going to cause fear. We don't want our patients to panic, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe six hours later, the next mandate came out. Okay. Everyone has to wear a mask now, you know? Wow. And this is just reflecting how quickly we were learning about it, how quickly everything was changing. And in the moment, it's frustrating as an employee, as a person that's like dealing with the virus directly, you're scared and confused and angry But there is a sense of understanding that you have when management, you can tell when management's trying their best Mm -hmm. to prepare us and unite us and 
I'm thankful for that. I am thankful for that. That's really helpful. I have to say, as a leader, it's helpful to hear what you're saying. And I know that there are leaders that are listening to this podcast and to hear that, I think you use the words trickle down, that there's a trickle down effect. And, you know, I, I guess I, I would ask you as a leader, what is important from leaders in times of crisis? Uh, you know, obviously one of the things leaders struggle with is should we put on a strong face and not show vulnerability and show that we're feeling confident? Or was it the fact that people would be vulnerable or transparent? Or I think you said something about listening. What was important to you? So... What was important to me was transparency, mm -hmm. feeling that whatever knowledge was being handed to upper management was also being handed to us. Transparency and also a little bit of brutal reality in terms of like not trying to fluff things up, not trying to sugarcoat anything to deter fear, but instead sitting down with us and saying, it's going to get ugly. We can tell it's going to get ugly, but we want to be here to shift our workload, to like manipulate our reality, to be able to address what's going to happen. And it's like you remove the sense of denial and resistance and move more towards acceptance, you know? And I think from that place, it's easier to operate because now you're not fighting it so much. Mm -hmm. You said vulnerability, and I think that's really important to be mm -hmm. vulnerable. I feel like I did see a vulnerable side of my leadership and of each other. Mm -hmm. And when we show our vulnerabilities, that's when we are able to tolerate really intense, difficult situations. So it was important that they were straight with you, it sounds mm -hmm. like, even if they didn't have all the information, even if the yep. news wasn't good, as opposed to feeling as though they're holding something back. So mm -hmm. really helpful for us to hear. What was it like as you saw more and more people getting sick and what kind of work were you doing and when did it start dawning on you that there's something going on here? We're, we're, you know, we're getting slammed. I remember we had an attending physician on our floor. I worked in a cardiovascular, like intensive care, CCU kind of floor. And we had an attending that began testing for COVID really early. We felt it was really early, almost silly. And we, I remember kind of like doing a little eye roll, like, come on, this is, this, this is silly. Like this person doesn't have symptoms, you know, it's that adjustment. Everyone goes through their phases of acceptance and we all went through our phases of acceptance in those like early days, but it became real when, again, management sat down and said, we're hearing from our peers at other facilities in the city that this is becoming overwhelming and we will be affected. And so then we started adjusting our floor. We basically converted our whole CCU into a COVID unit Engineers came in, took down all the windows, installed ports to where we can have negative pressure rooms. And little by little, first we had our first COVID patients came to a designated area until they got full, and then they came to us. And so we started getting the stories from our peers on other units of the hospital, and then we got it. And then we understood exactly what, was, what it was like. So it was scary. It was scary because we as a city were kind of the first hardest hit in the country 
And so it was all very new. And on top of that, you're kind of looking at other people's reactions and you never know how people will respond to something that's life-threatening to them. We lost a lot of employees. There were some people that said, you know what? I don't want to deal with it. Mm. And they were like, I'm out. And they left. And then you had people that were, you know, ready to jump in. And then you had people that helped, but that were, you know, I don't know, just everyone deals with it so, so differently, so uniquely. So, and in that beginning where you were anticipating, where it hadn't come yet, mm -hmm, but you sort mm -hmm. of, it felt like it was coming over the horizon, you know, yeah, what exactly. was that like? Was that nerve wracking? It was, it was nerve wracking. To me, it felt a lot like an experience I had a couple years ago where I went to Cambodia for a medical mission, mm. which was totally life-changing as these kind of experiences are, because it really puts you outside of your comfort zone. You get to see and feel and understand things you've never understood before. Mm. And in that experience, I'm out in these rural villages of Cambodia with very little resources, not even like, you know, running water, that sort of situation. And to me, it kind of like light something up within me. I enjoy that feeling. There's just, it's, you know, like one of my colleagues said, it kind of fills your bucket, but there's a little bit of like, oh shit feeling, you know? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that was the same kind of feeling that I had coming into it to where you feel it, like you said, coming over the horizon. And it almost feels like a little bit like out in a rural area with very little resource and you're like okay i gotta everything has to become shifted adjusted and so i remember thinking if i'm gonna thrive in this situation that i can't control i want to be able to maintain who i am as a person and what lights me up because i know at some point i'm gonna need it yeah right now i might feel like all kind of like a little bit excited a little bit of a thrill but i know that's not gonna last I know better. So I set up my processes at home as best that I could in those early days to be able to work out at home, to be able to, you know, do the things that I love at home. And so although that didn't last very long into the pandemic, it at least got me through the transition. It's really interesting. <laughs> do you think that that experience in Cambodia maybe prepared you a little bit in terms of, you know, crisis, in terms of being in a place that doesn't have a lot of resources, that there was something similar about that in the pandemic? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because you have to be crafty and resource conscious and self-conscious, at least out in Cambodia. I mean, I got sick one of the days. I was like, you know, thrown up on the side. And you have to be able to self-preserve in order to be effective at all. And I think that's one thing our entire healthcare system is seeing. The work is already hard to begin with, but in these extreme conditions, how does one learn how to self-preserve? Because then we're ineffective otherwise. It's a really interesting comparison because I think, you know, before the pandemic, most of us thought, you know, we live in this incredibly well-resourced society and our healthcare system is 
uh, we spent a lot of money on it and we have all these resources. But I think people that we've been talking to, their experience was we didn't. We didn't know what we were doing, especially in the beginning. We didn't have the resources that we need. And particularly, you know, we've talked to a lot of nurses. And when you and I talked a little bit, we talked about how a lot of the brunt of COVID fell on the backs of uh, nurses. Can you talk a little bit about that? I guess it's just, there's two sides to that. You feel like this is our role. So of course it would feel that way, Mm -hmm. but at the same time you feel, but it shouldn't feel that way because these are extreme conditions. And, you know, I did get a, a really, I guess, intimate taste of that because, you know, initially the logic is minimize the amount of people that are going into the rooms to minimize exposure. Mm And to me, that makes sense. And in the beginning, I thought, okay, I will try my best to be the person that kind of like absorbs the tasks, clumps them together. I'm going in, I can do it. So if there's a respiratory therapist, you know, if there's a resident that needs to do something like, tell me what you got to do, I'm going in, Mm -hmm. I will take care of it. And that was probably um, sustainable for only a few weeks Mm -hmm. because you know, you learn really quickly that us as nursing and us as humans, we are a finite resource. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm only one person. I can only do so much. And humans will be humans. I remember I've never really broken down at work. It's I've never reached a breaking point to where I'm like, I have to step out and like cry. But I did during the pandemic, I did once and I'm glad I did because it helped me push through those feelings. So one instance that I had was a day where I had, just like many of the days, I had two very sick patients that were so delicate, very delicate. They desaturate really instantly, really severely, and you're having a, you know, manipulate and tweak and suction and all the things that you got to do. These are COVID Um, patients. These are COVID patients. Yeah. 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 The typical COVID patient that has no reserve. And so I'm trying my best to be that person that, you know, absorbs the tasks, goes in, is efficient, minimizes exposure. But on this particular day, I began to get the sense that the team was then seeing that they could distance then their work onto me. That's how it felt. I mean, I felt like Mm. I was, I felt like now I was being taken advantage of. And it sounds really ugly. And I hate saying that because I never really feel that of people. But in that moment, that's what I felt. I was Mm -hmm. like, you know what? I can't do this. I can't do all of these tasks. And I remember in particular, there were orders coming in that were really insensitive to how severe the situation was. Really insensitive to what it costs me Mm-hmm. to repeat an x-ray on a patient who's severely overweight, intubated, you know, decompensates very quickly just because maybe like you couldn't find the x-ray online or just because there was a little tweak in the system or whatever, you know, it brought me to a point where if I didn't speak up, nothing was going to change and I was going to suffer for it. And so in that moment, I had to step aside And although I didn't directly stand up and say, listen, you can't be doing this to me, you know, Mm -hmm. you could see it in my face. And thankfully, 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 someone, one of the fellows was being very in tune to how we were feeling. Mm -hmm. And he pulled me aside and he said, what's wrong? Something's not right with you. And in that moment, I just, 
I just cried. It all came out. I bawled like a baby. And that's when I said, I can't do this by myself. I'm a finite resource and I need help. Like, please, if you could talk to your residents, I'll talk to respiratory therapy. I can't do, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And I'm glad I spoke up. There was a little piece of me because I'm not used to speaking up historically in my life. That's changing now. I'm not used to speaking up. I'm used to just swallowing it. Just, you know, I'll get over it. I'll deal with it personally on my own. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, I think in the beginning you said one of the reasons you wanted to give back by doing this podcast was to speak to those folks out there who are vulnerable. So I wonder if we might just spend a minute on this because it seems really important. When you, you said this, you got to a point where you realized human beings are finite, right? And as you know, a lot of people that go into healthcare and frontline healthcare and nursing especially are people who give a lot and are able to take a lot. So just like to ask you a little bit more what that was like for you to sort of feel within yourself that limit, right? Because I think that's Mm. something that I think a lot of people might wonder about. Like, how do you know that you've reached a limit? Because people will second guess, well, am I really at a limit? Am I not at a limit? What was that like for you? I mean, did you, you know, did it surprise you that you, that it kind of, was it, were you in control of it? What was it? What did it feel like? You never, really see it coming. It creeps in. It's not something like, you know, that hits you in the face until it reaches a a threshold. I think I do believe that we all have a threshold until we really start to complain. I have a high threshold I found out. And I think that it takes a little bit of self-knowledge introspection, and you almost have to act as a parent to yourself and kind of like mother yourself through that. You know, if I'm having to separate myself and head to the bathroom and just look in the mirror and blink a couple times, then something's up, you know? And I think it's about asking those questions and honestly allowing yourself to put down the image that you typically like to exude. I feel that I was raised, quote unquote, raised as a nurse to, you know, be very tough, have a very tough exterior. I got my experience at a level one trauma center in El Paso, and those people are tough. And it's fascinating to see how that image I bring to everywhere else I go. And so I feel the need to act like nothing's bothering me, like I can handle it. Yes, yes, yes. But In times like this, when you feel like you reach a brinking point, you kind of have to allow yourself to step out of that. The first important lesson is noticing that limit in yourself. You know, I think you at one point called it the mental edge, you know. Then the second thing, you know, you said is how do you communicate about it? And and you said, well, maybe I could have, you know, said it in some other way, but I did communicate, you know, with my face with the way I looked, maybe with some of the things I said, because if you just notice the limit and then that's an important moment, right? So like imagining that you're giving counsel to somebody who's in a similar situation and they do reach the limit. What, what do you, what's important about communicating that and, and how do you do that? It's definitely going to take a little bit of bravery. It takes a bit of bravery to speak up and vulnerability because you don't want to look weak, I guess. I mean, this is coming from my history. You know, you don't want to look weak, but I really feel that when people see 
your honesty and your vulnerability, that they can relate to that and they understand because everyone's felt it. Everyone's felt that limit being pushed mm -hmm. across that limit. And so um, communicating before it gets to a point where now you feel maybe attacked and now you're just kind of lashing out because people mm -hmm. get there too. People don't mm -hmm. say anything. They bottle up, mm -hmm. they bottle up. And then finally when they unleash, now it's an attack and then other people get hurt and then you have this terrible cycle. But I think it's understanding that crescendo it's mm -hmm. a little bit of a crescendo. It's an interesting reframing of bravery, right? Because, you know, most people obviously see the bravery in doing the job to begin with, being out on the front lines, your life is at risk, mm -hmm. you're trying to save other people's lives. But to reframe it, that it takes guts to, you know, find the limit in yourself and, and use your voice. Mm -hmm. One of the ways to cope, I think, is finding that bravery to say, I can't do it or I need help. Yeah, takes courage. So then um, you also mentioned that you wanted to talk a little bit to speak to people about what it's like to realize that you need to get support yourself and what and what that was like. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, therapy for me is a new thing. I just started really mm -hmm. dedicating myself to sessions this year. It was a little bit of a bumpy start. I dabbled with it before the pandemic, didn't really take it seriously. I found one person and I wasn't connecting, wasn't seeing the benefit. So I kind of like left that on the side. And then during the pandemic, I remember thinking, I wonder if I should talk to someone about how I'm feeling, because this is heavy. Hmm. And the facility did provide therapy for the staff or nurses, docs, whoever, but it wasn't really in our face. It was just like a little printed piece of paper that was like, if you need help, call this number. I remember I took a picture of the paper and one night I got home and I thought, I really need to talk to this person, whoever this person is, I'm going to call them right now. And then you just, you get distracted and you fall asleep and you put it off. And so it wasn't until actually I'd left New York and other big changes happened in my life that I dedicated myself to finding a therapist that I liked, that I enjoyed, that I connected with. Now I'm like, oh my God, this is so valuable. Now I'm seeing it and I'm feeling it, you know. So, and I, I want to get to that part, but but sure. before that, th this moment that you talked about, I just want to make sure I get it right. So you, you actually, therapy was on your radar screen, you know, before the pandemic, although, it, you know, it didn't really work out and you hadn't really gotten into it or anything. Mm -hmm. So, but it was, it was not a totally new thought. Then the pandemic hits and you have this thought, I wonder if I should talk with somebody about the way I'm feeling, you know, and then you looked at the poster for, and it's really, I have to say my experience within, you know, my region and just talking with people for every one person, you know, that reached out for help during the first surge, there were hundreds, there were really thousands of people who, who probably thought of it, but didn't reach out. You know what I mean? If you were able to talk with, if you, you know, we waved a magic wand and we found somebody in the corridor and they were just about to, and they were making this decision, you know, should I talk with them? What is this poster? What kind of advice might you give them? You know, what's on the other side of that telephone call? I would say take the leap and take it with interest because you deserve that. You, you and your mental health deserve to be 
you know, priority. And it's so easy. To, that's the, I think that's one of the things. I mean, you know better than I do that it's the easiest thing to kind of put off to the wayside and put last on the list. But if therapy has ever crossed your mind, like maybe I should talk to someone about this, that means yes, do it. And talk to like I would say cast a wide net because it takes a little bit of searching to find someone that you connect with and someone that you feel like you can be real with and honest with. And um, it's a bit of a personality match. You know, this is a human to human connection. Like we're not machines. We're not robots. We're not, you know, Mm -hmm. we need to be able to feel that connection with someone. So it sounds like one of the things you're speaking to is you've been able to trust your instinct about some of this stuff, about when to reach out or when to use your voice. It was not an easy journey. I wasn't always like this. <laughs> I wasn't well, always like this. You but know, you become this way. <laughs> well, how do you become that way? I guess you keep putting yourself through experiences that kind of push you to mold your personality in a way that you know is moldable and that you enjoy, you know? I, you know, lived most of my life being very shy and not speaking up for myself and not Mm. advocating for what I feel. And honestly, it was really for me, a turning point was moving to New York City Mm. and the way the city kind of encouraged the strongest within me, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I've been seeing my personality come out and flourish and kind of just grow and evolve through my experiences, my travels, that sort of thing, through things that I enjoy. Um, and I will say it's uncomfortable. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not easy. It's, it feels weird. You, you might lose friends over it. You might, you know, people may not like what they see because it's a different kind of you. But if it serves you to speak up and advocate for yourself, which it mm-hmm. always does, mm-hmm. then all of those things should fall exactly where they fall. And I think people listening to you are going to be really, and it's going to help a lot of people. I think they're going to be inspired, not only because you reached out, but because you're being very honest about it. it isn't an easy process, right? Like it's about, you know, leaning into discomfort and it is a process of growth. And so thank you for that. And, you know, I saw something on Twitter, I think today, somebody said, and I think this was more about, um, you know, law enforcement, but, you know, you wouldn't think twice if, uh, if somebody in law enforcement went to the gym to go work on their muscles. Right. But, but why do we think twice when they're going to the psychological gym? Right. It's Mm -hmm. really in some Mm -hmm. ways from a metaphor standpoint, no different. So, and, and you were about to say, um, you know, what, what was that? that, And I think one of the other questions people, people have a lot of questions about therapy. You know, most people don't walk around knowing what therapy is. They, they walk around knowing what happens if you break your leg, you know, Mm, or get a cut or have a heart attack in general, but they don't, they don't really know what, what's this therapy thing. So what has your experience been um, with therapy? It has been wonderful. Like I said, it took a while to get here, but I actually not only have one therapist, I have two therapists. (laughs) And some days I considered taking on a third, but I decided that I needed to me, the background of the person I'm speaking to is very important. So um, first of all, I have a marriage therapist and he is wonderful. He has a very like US educated science background and is really unveiling a lot of patterns and 
like just, you know, romantic situations that I have never like realized before, like communication with my partner, all that stuff. But that wasn't enough for me. I knew it wasn't enough for me. I wanted my own individual person. And so I was actually introduced to a woman from Argentina and I wanted someone Latin in particular because of my background. Um, My mom is Mexican. um, My dad is Persian. And I've been wanting help in understanding where my family background, mentality, psychology, all that stuff, what like the culture, where that comes from. And I knew that like someone that was born and raised here may not understand the nuances. And so this woman comes from, you know, a similar sort of background. And she even takes into consideration like family tree. And she asked me all the dates of my grandparents and great grandparents. And so there's almost a little bit of magic to her, which I need that too. I need everyone's perspective in my own self-understanding. You're really doing a great job right now demystifying therapy, right? Again, most people walk around, I don't know what a therapist is going to you know, do what are they going to do? How's it different than, you know, talking to a friend? So you you said a couple things. One is, you know, you use the word science. There's a science to it. People, you know, spend their lives training to try to figure out, you know, how, uh, you know, people's emotional lives are put together, psychological lives put together. And you also said something about, you know, it, it's not just a one and done you know, you, you try one therapist and that's it, right? Like it actually, there's an important part of it is what's the fit? Well, two ways. Mm-hmm. One is it's like going to the gym and working with a trainer. I want to work with a trainer that knows how to work on leg muscles, right? So there's a fit in terms of, like you said, couples counseling, that's a particular subset, right? But then also a fit, it, there's got to be a, you know, a good rapport. And if not, then change look for a new therapist, just in the same way you'd look for a new medication you were having side effects on. Right. right? And, but how, like if someone were to say, okay, that sounds good, but I could just go talk to my friend, you know, what, what, what's the difference? (laughs) I mean, friends are important. And I will say that there is, I'm absolutely therapeutic benefits in talking to friends and getting their perspective. And I would not have made it through the pandemic without Mm -hmm. my friends. They were incredible, but what I learned very quickly is that I need somebody to where I can kind of unload what I'm feeling and have someone who's like third party, totally unaffiliated with my life that has no interest, is not vested in what decision I make. I want someone to give me an opinion because everyone, you know, I, I speak to my friends and oh, this is what's going on, you know, whatever. And as pragmatic as a can be, everyone still kind of wants something, you know, Mm -hmm. everyone has a little bit of like, you know, well, you, you should do this, but you could do this because, Mm -hmm. you know, I would like that, you know, Mm -hmm. and it only, it comes from love. It comes from every, you know, it's not a bad place, but I, I don't like that feeling because then you disappoint people and then it's creates a bigger kind of mess. So Mm -hmm. I want a therapist. I want someone that out of me, all they want is like, you know, an hour of my time and my money and that's it. And mm-hmm. I can just call it there. So I think that's really important. That's really interesting. Uh, the way you put that, I, it makes a lot of sense. So it, it's different than, you know, friendship or, or it, which and friends are really important. You've already said that a number of times. I think that's crucial or family, but they're detached from the the outcome in a, in a way that frees, yep. it sounds like it frees you up 
to mm-hmm. be, you know, more available in the work. And it might free them up to be more like a technician in a way, kind of like when you're, you know, you're doing your nursing. That's very helpful. Well, as we just wrap things up, I'm going to ask if you have any thoughts you want to make sure, you know, you share. And I, I just want to, before that, just say, it's just uh, what an honor it is to talk with you. And I'm so, it's incredible to hear the way that you've, you know, managed the crisis, especially in the beginning, really from the beginning, you decided to stay, you know, you could have left, you decided to stay in New York. And, mm-hmm. and one of the reasons was you wanted to chip in. And one of the reasons was you felt like you had a community and you looked around, these are the people I want to be around and in a crisis. And, um, and then uh, to hear some of, for those of us that are leaders or uh, people like you that I imagine will be a leader, you know, when you're in the situation, what's important about leadership and leaders being straight and transparent and communicative, and then talking about, you know, when the work got really hard, how you found this limit in yourself. And I, I wish we had probably a whole show just to talk about that because yeah. if if we could somehow empower people to get better at that psychological muscle that's a psychological muscle by the way mm. being able to detect a finite limit within yourself if we could help people work on that muscle it would really change things and actually i think you already did you know in what you said so and then what you just said about counseling and therapy. Do you have any um, uh, final thoughts as we uh, close out the show? I guess just that, you know, for someone who is feeling like they're reaching a breaking point is to take it seriously and honor yourself in that way. Because really the pandemic at some point will end, you know, and you don't want to come out of it completely depleted and spent and self-preservation it's what gets you through that it's what makes you useful and effective and as healthcare workers we're especially now i mean we're eight months into this nine months into this and it doesn't even look like it's getting better it's only getting worse so we're in this for the long haul this is like a it's a marathon you know not a sprint it's really helpful. And and like you said before, there are consequences to not using your voice. Like you said, mm-hmm. things build up and then you're not mm-hmm. at your best and it takes bravery to, to speak up. So uh, Miriam, again, thank you so much for your time today on the podcast. And really, again, thank you for your service to the community. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Lift the mask, voices of heroes in a silent pandemic. With Dr. John Santo Pietro, executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, The Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer Sarah Marshall, theme song by Musical Smile. This show is engineered and edited by Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editor Vlad Radu, film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee, Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? 
Email The Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK, that's 1-800-273-8255, or text HELP to 741-741 if you're thinking about suicide. The Quell Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 47 512 